Today I welcome Christina Boderick, Head of School at Riviera Ridge in the United States. In this episode, I discuss change management, the importance of progressive education, adopting professional development at the heart of leadership, and growing empathetic leaders. I want to talk about change. You are no stranger to change. I think the world has experienced a huge amount of change the last 20 months. You have experienced it personally within the school. You have been going through an identity change. You become the Riviera Ridge School after more than 80 years as Marymount of Santa Barbara. Marymount was founded in 1938 with a faculty of four Catholic nuns. In 2021, as your website says, the school teaches through a reflective view of world religions. Why the Riviera Ridge School? In Santa Barbara, we have different areas, as most major metropolitan cities would. We're a very small beach city, which we've become a a well-renowned vacation location for many people. But we are a resort town on the central coast of California, right between Los Angeles and as you head into the Northern California area, Palo Alto and San Francisco, et cetera. And we are on an area of the Santa Barbara that's up in the mountains called the Riviera. Many call us the American Riviera as opposed to the French Riviera. And so obviously being up on the Riviera, that was a location and a name that would feel familiar to people. The Santa Barbara Mission, which was founded you know, hundreds of years ago, along with the other California missions, is right below us. And so our street name is Mission Ridge. And so when you put together uh, the Riviera with Mission Ridge, we came up with the Riviera Ridge School. So it is location centric, but also tells a little bit of a story about where we are and, and our history being here in the, in the Riviera of Santa Barbara for over 80 years. I mean, under the Riviera Ridge banner, what parts of Marymount's history and educational ethos are still relevant today? So our admission director, um, Molly Segel, kindly and thoughtfully always calls us a culture of kindness. And I would say that the founding principles of the school, based in moral and ethical behavior and development of character, as well as our focus on purpose beyond self, service. And then the idea that faith or the connection to spirituality can actually promote all of those things. Certainly, as it was founded as a girls' Catholic high school in 1938, that was a singular focus, a singular gender, singular religion. As the school progressed, we actually had two campuses at one time. We had little ones, boys and girls that started with us, but then boys would leave at second grade. And it's had a lot of iterations over the last 85 years. In 1972, as you know, the school was sold to a lay board of trustees, became a pre-K through eighth grade school for boys and girls, and over time developed a culture of making sure everyone felt included. And as we did that, we expanded our perspective on the religious piece because, and this is you know kind of a chronic issue, I guess, if you want to call it not a negative spin, but just kind of a reality spin. Catholic schools across the world, certainly in, Cal- in the United States, have been on decline 35% in the last 30 years and continue because people are expanding their knowledge and expanding their experience with developing their core values and looking for things that are are similar rather than different or exclusive. We, for over 50 years, have not been affiliated with the other Marymount schools across the world. There's a network, a global network of schools, and that ended in 1972. And so 
as that time progressed, it happened. And then we were very uh, literally blessed to partner with the UC Santa Barbara Department of Religious Studies in 2007 to develop our Kaleidoscope World Religions Program, which starts in fully starts in second grade, but now starts junior kindergarten all the way through eighth grade, which is an opportunity for our students to study the traditions and cultures and spirituality of all the, or the leading 10 world religions culminates in middle school with philanthropic studies in sixth grade, morality and ethics in seventh grade, and world religions in eighth grade. So it's a really wonderful opportunity to not let go of any of our traditions, but include them. This year, one of our wonderful things we were able to do post-COVID, having everybody back on campus, 25 years ago, we had a, a garden dedicated on campus. It was the Marymount Meditation Garden. And that garden had not been updated or kind of revitalized in the last 25 years. And with the dedication of the new name and making sure that our alumni and families who have known our school for the last at least 50 years here in Santa Barbara, assuming those people are still around and participatory, we rededicated the garden. We planted new trees and new roses. We got a new fountain. We rededicated the original statue of Mary from the Marymount School in the garden. And it's become this beautiful location center on our 11 and a half acres here in Santa Barbara, where people can gather, celebrate both who we've been and who we are. It's been a, a really wonderful centering point for us. Was the name changed to clear up any misperceptions about the school or was it a perfect time just to bring it into the 21st century and be relevant to the community around you? You know, I was hired in 2017 to start in 2018. And one of the big questions of the hiring committee and also in our process of being reaccredited with the California Association of Independent Schools was to clearly delineate our brand and identity. It was very confusing for people. The name itself is attached to many other Catholic institutions. There's a Marymount of Los Angeles, currently is an all-girls high school. There's Loyola Marymount University, which is a Catholic university in Los Angeles. There was another Marymount school down south that just recently also changed its name. It was a university, used to also be an all-girls Catholic school. And there are Marymount schools across the country. So there was definitely name and brand confusion. And it was the next step as the we our accreditation became very clear in 2018 that we needed to make a decision on what our identity was. So it was very clear. Then we went into strategic planning and then we went into brand and identity work. So for the last three and a half years, it's been a huge part of our community discussion, both at the board level, in our parent meetings. We have over 200 people participate in the accreditation and strategic planning conversations, not necessarily around the exact name change, but What we like to say is that the educational experience has not changed, just the name to clearly reflect kind of a broader scope of understanding. And as all of our families came back to school this year, everybody was clear. We are still the school we've always been. Our heart and soul is really focused on building community and making sure that the social, emotional, and moral, ethical fibers of each of our human beings on our campus, whether they be faculty or students, is clearly being recognized as the primary partnership to academic excellence. Managing change is is incredibly difficult. People don't like change. It brings unease because people like regularity. They like the schedule of what they know, what they can feel. What were the biggest challenges in changing a name of a school that is obviously many decades old with lots of longstanding traditions? You must have come across so many different barriers. 
you know, besides obviously changing cultural understanding and community understanding that this wasn't going to change educational values, what were the biggest challenges to you? There were several challenges. You know, one of our board members said, you know, I know we need to change the name. We wanted to make sure that the experience wasn't going to change. And we're, when you're in the middle of the decision-making process, you're not clear what's going to be the, the output. I would say the biggest challenge was making sure we took our time and didn't rush the process, but yet did it at a time that didn't disrupt the educational experience of our students. And so, you know, we knew last spring that the name was going to be changed. Then we spent time figuring out what was the most appropriate name. To be honest with you, I had hoped we could change it to like the Center for Intellectual and Moral Development of our students, right? (laughs) I really wanted to tell the story in the name. I didn't want it to necessarily, the name tells us where you are and what it is, but you have to experience the story. And then when we got the four key components of our story, which is critical curiosity, celebrating the everyday amazing, future-proofed experience, and our living kaleidoscope, those four components that kind of our marketing support really do tell the story. And then it was about sharing the story with the faculty and staff in a way that felt that we honored them. And we were able to do that really well over the summer, which was awesome. And we had 100% faculty and staff support. Everybody was on the same page. And to one point, we have a a longtime member of our community. He's a, a really amazing math and science specialist. He is the utmost respectful of who he is in our community and wanted him to know ahead of time he was going to help do sound and AV when we did our big presentation. So I wanted to have that process with him. And, you know, we had a really great conversation. He was like, great, that's, that makes sense. I really appreciate that. And as he walked out the office, he had a conversation with another colleague. She asked him what he thought of the uh, experience. And he said, it's about damn time. For his experience and for the experience of the people who've been here a long time, this was so gratifying because it now reflects the story that we've been trying to tell for a very long time, whether I was been here or not. And I do think that my energy as a head of school artistically and um, kind of what I believe in as a, um, we'll get to this in a minute, but happy kids learn and raising little humans to big humans, it makes more sense to widen our scope. But now it's our job to really launch a story that says, you know, we're never going to have a thousand students at our school. We'll have anywhere from 200 to 250 students with us every day, every year for the next however many years. And if we can instill in them a confidence that they can learn anything, they are safe, that they can feel good. And if they don't, they know how to ask and talk about it. They can resolve conflict peacefully and they have the support to be innovative and inspiring and imagining in everything that they do then those 250 people will then go affect another 250 or more people. And that legacy that started back when it was just for girls in a singular location for a singular purpose can now expand to three-year-olds to 14-year-olds for you know as long as we're ready to do it. What did you learn about your own leadership, probably skills and style during this process? Because it, you know, not many leaders get to go through such institutional change. You obviously have a unique style to the way that you lead as well. What were the biggest challenges to you and and how did that play to your strengths? Well, I think the nice thing about coming in is that we built credibility as a team, uh, our administrative team, and as a board of trustees in the first two years we were here because 
you know, the pandemic shut us down halfway through my second year. And in our first year, we were working towards achieving our first seven-year accreditation with the California Association of Independent Schools. We were able to do that because we were extraordinarily honest with ourselves about what our challenges and opportunities were, as well as our strengths, right? And so we just worked really hard. Our work ethic is very high. In our second year, you know, we were getting going with our strategic planning and just kind of noodling along when the pandemic hit. And noodling along is a kind of a soft way of saying we were gently pressed up against it and getting to it. And then the pandemic hit, and I have an associate head of school, uh, Andrea Torchin and I, and we each of us have very different styles of leadership. And we have an incredibly good team with each other and a trust built. And I like to say that Andrea builds the clock from the inside out, and I build the clock from the outside in. And because of that, we have a well-timed machine that works really well. And when the pandemic hit, we were ready. By April of 2020, I was announcing what we were doing in the fall because I was confident in our community and we had done enough communication about the importance of honoring the human spirit before we get into guiding the human mind that I built trust with people. And quite frankly, within the first month, I was saying, here's how we're going to do this. We're going to be kind. We're going to be present. There will be no shame. Masks, no masks, vaccines, vaccines, no masks, politics, whatever. Getting your kids dressed in the morning, not getting them dressed in the morning. Having them be on Zoom, not having them be on Zoom. There were so many new choices that we had not experienced. And the quickest way to a demise of a community or of a family is shame. Shame does not work ever. And I have a degree in child psychology or there's nothing in any book that ever says Good leadership starts with shame and control (laughs) and good parenting starts with shame and control. So between those two, you have to lead with love. You have to be patient. You have to be funny and ridiculous and maybe be willing to cry on Zoom calls with your families because I did. And, you know, it was just being human. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. And this probably leads quite well into the fact that Riviera Ridge cultivates a progressive educational model. What is the progressive education and what is the most significant difference with a traditional education? So... I want to be really clear. Progressive is not a political statement. And I know that's been used quite a bit in a variety of different political forums across the world. It's not about being, it has nothing to do with politics. John Dewey in the early 1900s was a founding professor of teachers college at Columbia University. He's considered kind of the father of progressive education. And what it is, I I saw an article on it yesterday, and I can't remember what I was reading. We're not school-centered. We're student-centered. It's about the child. It's never about the school or the name of the school or where the school is or who teaches there, or it is always about the child and the child's education. And over the last 25 years specifically, although it goes back, you know, at least a hundred years, my child learns with the way my child does and your child learns the way your child does. And we might have seventh grade math to offer each of these children if they're both in seventh grade. But one's going to process the information in a way that they're going to process it. And the other one's going to process it in the way they're going to process it. It's a differentiated model. It's not unique. Lots of schools are doing it. We're planting our roots in the fact that 
we're going to make sure that with the 220 or 50 students on campus that we have every year, each child is going to be provided with the highest level of educational experience possible for them with a really solid and robust curriculum, but that meets their needs. So if they need to have a pace that's quick and fast and getting through it and being challenged, they're going to have that. And if they need a pace where they can take some work home and do some homework and be thinking about it and talking to their parents about it and processing it and taking the week, they're going to have that. But they're going to walk away with a confidence as learners that doesn't get in their way as we prepare them for high school and college. I perceive a traditional model is here's our school, here's our curriculum, good luck, right? As opposed to you are the most unique child we've seen today. And I could say that to five different kids because each of them are going to tell me something different about what they learned. And I could have given them the same book to read, but one's going to notice the characters. The other ones are going to notice where the characters live. The other ones are going to say what the characters did. None of the answers are wrong. I always use the phrase, we're all born original, so don't live your lives as a copy. You know, it's something I teach all my kids and it's, it very much is that. And I think education has been left behind because sometimes it's so hard to change and we stick on this conveyor belt to this kind of cookie cutter education to an off the peg life. And, you know, it's not what we know is going to work. A happy, confident child can achieve anything. I have a funny story about where education has changed. So I'm a product of the 70s. I grew up in public school through my eighth grade year, but then I went off to private school after that. But in my first grade year, this head of school with her, all of her creative leadership style and joy and fun around leadership was asked to stand in the corner because she couldn't keep her mouth shut in first grade. <laughs> and, I, and that's what happened. I can still see the corner that I stood in, in my first grade classroom because I was too expressive. And I can tell you today that if we had a teacher standing a child in the corner face back to the school, that teacher would not be here tomorrow. So education has changed whether we like it or not. And in this particular instance, that I can tell you right now, that was shame-based. It did not build my confidence. I think we can all go back to the 70s, the 80s, the 90s in terms of how we were all educated. I think it was, you know, you look at the shame-based, the teacher's always right. It's my way or the highway. And we know that it doesn't grow people. Within any organization, it doesn't grow people. And we need to grow people. I want to talk about the Kaleidoscope Project. It's your signature school program. Is that part of the school's focus on progressive education? Could you tell us a little bit more? Because I like the sound of it. You know, we belong to an organization called the Center for Spiritual and Ethical Education, and it is a, a nonprofit organization that promotes moral and ethical identity of each school, and often through the lens of the study of world religions. And so I would say that we are a unique school in the Santa Barbara Central Coast region providing this opportunity, but I know we are part of a collection of schools that are trying to do this across the country right now. There's an amazing educator and author, Ibu Patel, who started the Interfaith Youth Corps out of Chicago in the late 90s, early 2000s. And he believes that the divide of our country and the divide of our perspectives has come a lot because we forget to look at our similarities rather than our differences through the lens of how we were raised with moral and ethical behavior. And where does that moral and ethical behavior usually come from? From the religious beliefs or lack thereof, either way. I mean, I don't want to say that you have to be religious to have moral and ethical beliefs because that's not true. When people are raised in homes 
with a certain belief system. It usually comes from somewhere. And many people will say, oh, I was raised in a Jewish family with Jewish values, or my family is Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim or Christian or Catholic, you know, or any of those things. And if you look at the principles in all of those religions I just mentioned and some others, the common goal of treating each other kindly, honoring each other's human experience is the same. And so what we felt honored the history of the school and extended it from the original Catholicism that it was founded on, you know, 85 years ago, was taking that belief that all religious beliefs have value and have understanding in them to bring us together to be this culture of kindness. So we believed that the not getting rid of Catholicism was the answer, but including it in a broader stroked picture, including all world religions, so that children would have exposure and understanding and maybe be able to decide for themselves. I cannot tell you how many families I have here that said, oh, well, I was raised this way, but my wife was raised this way, or my husband was raised this way, and I'm raised this way, or we're not sure what we're doing, or we just, and we love that we can have our kids come home and talk to us about what they're learning about this other religion that we hadn't even thought about yet because they're in the Kaleidoscope program. And so it supports families choosing their own perspective on things and then bringing together and having some common ground here at school. Such a great initiative. And I think more schools should be following your lead on the Kaleidoscope project. You're one of 20 international leaders participating in Columbia University's fellowship for heads of school. What is the fellowship and how is one chosen to participate? So the Klingenstein Center at Columbia University is all about uh, independent school leadership and education. They are really supported well. And what happens is, is as a head of school, you have to have a couple years under your belt and apply for the fellowship. I actually did the fellowship in my first year here at the school in 2019. And I was one of 20, like you said, selected that year. And there are 20 selected each year. So I think there's probably a couple hundred of us at this point um, that have done the fellowship. And you basically spend two weeks together away from your school and your family studying and discussing independent school research topics with the professors at Columbia University and with each other. It was great because I was able to get our accreditation completed, have our visit done. And then I left for two weeks in January, February, right before we started our strategic planning process to take a break and think about who I wanted to be as a leader What are the things I needed to work on? What are the things I wanted to reflect on? How did I want to connect with others? And I do believe that that foundation was an excellent next step. As I was walking through the hallways of Teachers College, it looks a bit like Hogwarts. And knowing that John Dewey had studied and researched and talked about the same things that I was talking about, not just 100 years earlier. So going back to your question about progressive education and so forth, it was just an extraordinarily amazing time to be there on behalf of my school and on behalf of being a a longtime educator. So I I hope others can do it. And it's a very busy and thoughtful two weeks, but it's nothing was more worth it, in my opinion. Who was the most influential person you met and why? Uh, That's an easy question. And you can follow her on Twitter as well. Dr. Sonia Hereford, she is a member of the Columbia University staff. And she was talking to us about race and equity in education and in our human experience with each other. And um, I hope that I get to get her out here to speak at our school someday. She's a brilliant educator and writer and author. Columbia is lucky to have her. 
I think it's really important that you you lead by example and role model, obviously, professional development. And, you know, being a leader, you don't often find the time to be able to go off and develop yourself because you're, you're always on the front line, you're always leading, and probably your, your day's the longest out of everybody. How do you use what you've learned in your day-to-day role as a school leader, the things that you've pulled from professional development within the fellowship and other development programs? So, you know, it's funny. This is my second headship. I was six years out of school in Kansas City, Missouri, even though I'm from California and this is my home. You know, there's lots of what I like to call shoulda, coulda, wouldas in the sense that, you know, I had the same level of energy and and excitement for my position. But I think it's really important that you spend time getting to know who you are as a human being, like what fills your bucket. Because if you're in a school or you're in a work environment, that even though the subject matter, education, children, is so invigorating for you, if it's not the right space to be in, if you can't be the thinker that you truly are in that space, you're going to probably experience a level of burnout, which is what I did. You know, Probably by year four at my last school, I could sense that I, I needed a shift. You know, And by the end of the year five, I was applying for this job. And then by year six, I was here. So, so that was good. But I love working with three to 14-year-olds. It's just, I'd probably have even littler ones if I could, you know, two-year-olds. I think that's just the most important time of life. It's what I call the make them or break them years. You know, zero to five, it's really about parenting. Five to 10, those are the times where kids are building their relationships and kind of developing their skill sets. They're learning how to read. They're learning how to figure out what they enjoy, whether it be sports or arts or performing arts, whatever it is. And then, you know, 10 to 15 years of like those fourth through eighth grade years of middle school and getting ready for high school, I often talk with families about this. It is the the most crucial time of a family's development. Typically, the parents have been married by 10 years, seven to 15 years by that point. Maybe there's financial struggles going on in the household. Maybe there's marital issues happening. Maybe there's midlife crisis and menopause and families that you're taking care of as far as older parents. Maybe you're dealing with health and wellness issues and grief. And then you've got children ending your into puberty and adolescence. So you put all that in a household. The school has to be a safe haven. It has to know what it's doing. It has to believe in raising the whole child from the inside out, because this has to be the safe place. This cannot be the place that kids get out of the car and become anxious because it's just going to exacerbate whatever else is going on at home. We can sit here and say, oh, well, the pandemic made it harder. This makes it harder. Politics makes it hard. But the things that have not changed in the world, technology aside, social media aside, is the development of a child. It's the same as it's always been. And either we know it, we either understand that and protect that child's heart so that their brain can function at the highest capacity, or we don't. And I think actually your Twitter account says this quite well in the bio, you know, at CK Broderick, you say, you are loving and leading little humans as they grow into big humans. And I think that kind of sums up your approach to education. And I completely agree with you, the nurture time. I mean, I've got four children. One, my youngest is 10, and I've, I have a couple in that middle period. And I know it's an extraordinarily difficult time. Everything you said absolutely comes into that melting pot where you go through so many biological, physiological, emotional changes and we're all trying to navigate. And actually in our situation with a large family, we've got it at lots of different angles, lots of different times. How do adults grow resilient and empathetic humans? 
It has to be something that they understand is valued every day. The families that choose us know that's what we do here. We talk a lot about social emotional learning. With a school of 35 full-time teachers, we have about 50 employees and about 225 students right now. I employ a full-time associate head of teaching and learning, a full-time director of student wellness, a full-time licensed clinical social worker who focuses on uh, social emotional learning in the classroom and counseling, a full-time learning specialist, and a full-time division coordinator in the middle school who focuses on executive functioning skills. And they are a part of a group that's called our student support team. I believe 150 million percent that all of those pieces have to be in place at every school so that every part of the child is being addressed. So if they are struggling academically, we have support. If they're struggling emotionally, we have support for them. If they're struggling physically or some with health stuff, we've got support with them. If there are behavioral issues, we don't have a discipline policy at our school. We have what we call a restorative practice, which means if something happens, a conflict happens between the children, they are given the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation, be listened to, have the other person listen to them. They get to listen to the other people and then figure out how do we resolve this conflict and how do they give back to the community so that they learn from the experience and it doesn't happen again. And it works and it works really, really well. Those are skills people need at work. hundred percent. And you actually retweeted a message from the Dalai Lama that said something like education today needs to include principles such as compassion and nonviolence, where we need to learn about emotional hygiene, tackling destructive emotions to find peace of mind. I'm really intrigued by what the ingredients are to emotional hygiene. You know, it's funny when you think about, and this is going to get really specific, but when you think about getting in the shower, everybody's got a different routine. You know, some people wash their face first. Some people wash their body first. Some people put their hair conditioner on, let it sit, do their thing. Emotional hygiene is what's good for you, Simon. I mean, I'm an extrovert and I process out loud. My husband says I am a verbal vomiter, quite frankly. (laughs) But I literally figure things out as I'm talking. I have an 18-year-old son who is a hundred million times smarter than I will ever be, like book smart, just a brilliant mind, but he's an introvert and he processes inside and he needs time every day to be by himself. That is part of his emotional hygiene. If I forced him to be with the family every day, all the time, family dinners, it would exhaust him and deplete his energy. That's not fair for me to to say just because I want to sit around and talk at the dinner table every night doesn't mean he does. And I really have to honor that. And so We've settled on once a week. <laughs> I sign up to that. I mean, we've actually now signed up to not. We used to kind of try and get together and force like a family Sunday lunch. Let's go to the pub. Let's do the. But it just became really hard work, forcing us all just to get together because we thought it was good family time. But actually, it wasn't good family time at all because everyone didn't really want to be there. Only my wife and I wanted to be there because we wanted to get out and not cook. So we actually started to go by ourselves and the kids were happy. And yet we'd get together with family meals in the week, which weren't so prescribed. And then everyone could feel content. You know, we talk about finding peace of mind because we need to teach our kids the skill about finding peace of mind. And is peace of mind completely linked to happiness? You know, is the definition of finding peace of mind happiness? I think that's a bit self-serving. I think that it's part of the puzzle. Peace of mind comes when 
I feel not mentally, but I physically feel and emotionally feel like I'm contributing. So I definitely think there's two pieces of the puzzle here. It's almost like a triangle, actually. It's both physically, mentally, and emotionally, right? So if I'm able to get enough rest and get myself out in nature or get that exercise that my body needs, that's a part of it. If I am stimulated intellectually, that's great. But I also need to get out emotionally. And what that means is I need to be making sure that I'm connected to other humans. I mean, the research supports this 100%. But I know one of the best things that my son's been able to do, and I'm just going to refer to him again, is he's doing community service after school, working with kids now. And all of a sudden, he's feeling better. He's not coming home after school and thinking about himself. He's immediately getting out and being with other little people and doing work that's not about him. That's why kids get involved in sports teams and after school activities. And quite frankly, when COVID shut us all down, it helped really feed the beast of self-absorption and rather than being out there for others, right? And now we're having to retrain ourselves to remind ourselves, oh yeah, it's good to be out there talking with people. It's good to be connecting. It's good to be of service to others. It's good to be thinking about somebody else's problems besides myself. One of our vision statements is that we live with purpose beyond ourselves. Yes, emotional hygiene includes taking care of ourselves. But it also includes getting out of ourselves and asking someone else how they're doing and being of service to them and being kind and finding opportunities to be thinking about something besides ourselves. Kindness is a really great foundation. I think we often talk at home about working hard and being nice to people because you know that you have to have a relationship with people. We we get so consumed, and I think the media industry and obviously the sensationalism and also toxic political culture in America. It's very difficult to be a young person, and it's very difficult probably to be an adult trying to role model them because we're almost caught in the same dark paradox of technology consuming our behaviors. There is light at the end of the tunnel, and it's through schools like yourselves, it's like leaders like yourself who are trying to make a difference. And I certainly know, having spoken to many of the American independent schools, that service sits at the heart of it. And the more we can do to adopt that, to give back to others, it does make you feel good please carry on holding that flag and leading the way because I think you're doing a cracking job. Oh, I like that. Did you say cracking? I like it. Oh, I'm going to say that. I'm doing a cracking job. I like it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a cracking job. Yeah, so it's a very British one for saying. I'm going to tell my kids that I'm cracking. Well, my 15-year-old usually says I'm cringing, not cracking. So it's good. <laughs> it's been wonderful. It's wonderful. You've got a real passion for it. And it's the real purpose of having these kind of I want to call them fireside chats, but they're digital fireside chats. They're brilliant, right? It stokes intellectual debate. It it shows an agenda that is really important. We've got to be having. And other schools cannot be tied to, as I say, the cookie cutter approach to education because it's just not relevant or fit for purpose for these young men and women that we're trying to steward off to be, to inherit this world that we're, sadly, we're going to leave them. So congratulations on the massive change. Most people found it hard to deal with just dealing with COVID. You've actually reinvented your school. So big hats off to you. Well, I'd like to say that we're not a startup, but we're a little bit of a start over. But we get to take all of these beautiful historical traditions and foundations that have been laid before us. And I think literally every 10-year generation of, of students and families has a different story to tell at our school, which is unique and fascinating. And so now we're beginning this next journey and um, hopefully people will feel very honored in our process. So I hope you get to come visit us someday, Simon. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. 
Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.